Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at our childhood favorites to see if they stand the test of time. I'm Patrick, and with me this week is... Chris. Randy. And Sancho. And we have another classic 80s film to review this week. And before we do that, a word from our advertiser. This podcast is sponsored by Flypaper Contraceptives, America's number one bug blocker for over a half century. Try us once and you'll be stuck. Okay, this week, if I was mad, I'd say The Immortal, but I'm going to say the infamous The Fly, David Cronenberg's The Fly. And who's got the summary this week? Uh, not me. <laughs> that would be me. Okay, Chris. Chris, can you summarize this 95-minute <laughs> movie in less than 95 minutes? <laughs> this one I probably can. This is my uh, shortest review at under seven pages. <laughs> wow. <Good Lord. laughs> Flypaper. Flypaper. All right. Back in the 80s, when AIDS was all the rage, but homosexuality was tucked far away in the closet, Hollywood took a more subtle approach to broaching the topic of the disease. Instead of a sappy Philadelphia tale with the affable Tom Hanks in the lead, the horror film The Fly was made. Its grotesque nature was a direct reflection of society's vision of the virus on a human. Our movie begins with the socially awkward but brilliant scientist named Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, hitting on journalist Veronica Quaife, played by Gina Davis. Quaife. I, I want to say Quaife, but you know. It's French. It's French. Quaff. Quaff. Played by Gina Davis at a meet and greet for Brundle's company, Bartik Science Industries. As with any eccentric genius... Brundle offers to give Veronica a late-night tour of his lab, which comes complete with a big bed and a stripper pole. There, he reveals his invention, three telepods, that will forever change the way humanity travels. But they're not ready just yet. They have this nasty knack for turning baboons into piles of mush. Brundle convinces Veronica to document his progress. She agrees as long as she gets laid at least three times a day. After their first trip to Poundtown, Brundle gets inspired and reprograms the telepods so they can transport living tissue. It's a success. Win one for unprotected premarital sex. Instead of celebrating with her new man, Veronica leaves to go tell her old boy toy and current boss, Stathis Borons, played by a furry John Getz, that she is cutting him off from her Poonanny party once and for all. Jealous, Boran says he will publish the telepod story without her and take all the credit. Meanwhile, a drunk and pissed-off Brundle decides to teleport himself in his fancy-dancy invention, but doesn't see the housefly zoom in the pod with him. The two get shot across the room quicker than you can say Wonka-vision, but instead of emerging as a tasty chocolate bar, Brundle and the fly are fused into one mean, lean, pukey machine dubbed Brundlefly. 
He is stronger, has more stamina, and a penis that can pump for days. But these benefits are the beginning of the end for our wacky scientist. He is transforming inside and out. Over time, he loses body parts only to have them replaced with insect limbs. He begins to have a strong craving for sugars, is able to crawl on the walls and the ceiling, and vomits on food to dissolve it before eating it. Veronica is horrified at his transformation, but really becomes unglued when she learns that she's pregnant with this bug's baby. Which should be a lesson to all you whores out there. You get some crazy guy banging you until you're blue, and you get a cooch full of maggots. Since Veronica isn't sure if she was impregnated before or after Brendel's mutation, she wants to abort it, and turns to Borans for help. But before the doctor is able to snip-snip away at her vajayjay, Brundlefly swoops in to save his just-dating grub. He takes Veronica back to his warehouse, where he intends to use his telepods to fuse himself with Veronica and his baby. Borans comes to the rescue with a disassembled shotgun, but is intercepted by Brundlefly. He dissolves Borans' hand and foot with his acidic vomit, but not the gun. He leaves that intact. Brundlefly transforms into his final form and throws Veronica into pod number one and then enters pod number two himself. Not dead yet, Boran shoots the cables to her pod, rendering it useless. Seeing this, Brundlefly breaks out of his pod as the teleportation begins. He is fused with metal from his machine into a hideous pile of fly poo. In great pain, the Brundlefly silently begs Veronica to kill him. She hesitates, but realizes that is what is best for the baby and blows his head off. As the movie ends, there is a foreboding sense that a sequel is not far behind. The end. <laughs> All right, Chris. Warms the inner cockles of your heart, that story. Yeah, it, it just, it's one of the most romantic films of the 1980s, I think. Uh, usually I do all the background information, but I believe Sancho's going to do it this week. Yeah, The Fly, the feel-good movie of 1986, released August 15, 1986, released on the same week as Armed and Dangerous with John Candy, as well as Manhunter. This film was also released in the same month as Howard the Duck, One Crazy Summer, Transformers, the movie, not to be confused with the cartoon, and Stand By Me. This movie grossed uh, just over $40 million. It was the 23rd highest grossing film of 1986. And it came in right behind Poltergeist 2, Short Circuit, Pretty in Pink. However, it finished ahead of Three Amigos, Little Shop of Horrors, and About Last Night. Wow, that's actually in some uh, pretty serious films there that I remember. Uh, Three Amigos and Little Shop of Horrors and Pretty in Pink are pretty much iconic 80s films. I don't tend to think of this one like that, but... Um, Not iconic, but I think Short Circuit actually did, <laughs> I, uh, I did pretty well, I think. Yeah, Short short Circuit. I mean, this had a sequel, too, but Short Circuit had a sequel and uh, not a good one, but yeah, yeah kind of interesting. All right. I should, done, I should have done research, but was this before or after Beetlejuice? This was before this... Be- Beetlejuice, by about okay. uh, two years, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is it's kind of funny because bringing up Beetlejuice, directed by Tim Burton, this was originally developed for as a project for Tim Burton, and they were looking for Michael Keaton to play the lead role that Jeff Goldblum eventually got. I have a hard time imagining Michael Keaton in that, and I have a hard time this being made by Tim Burton in kind of Tim Burton-esque ways. Um, hey, I'm a fly. Come on, let's get it on. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, how many how many how many scenes of Michael Keaton in his tidy whiteies? <laughs> yeah, I got hairs in my back. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine anybody but Jeff Goldblum doing this role. He's great at weird scientist roles. Yeah, that seems to be his niche. That's the only thing he does. So, I mean, I I, I agree with you. That's one thing about this film that uh, I think does stand out. I thought Jeff Goldblum does a great job in it. Yeah, I'd read somewhere that Siskel or Gene Siskel or Roger Ebert were saying that he that they got kind of snubbed in regards to the Academy Awards on this one. I thought the movie was pretty good, but I wouldn't go so far as saying that. Yeah, I don't know about Academy Awards. Maybe makeup, but other than that, so. Anyways. Well, yeah, but when you're coming out with at the same time as One Crazy Summer and Howard <laughs> the Duck, you're going to run legs ahead on that one. Hey, uh, Transformers the movie was in there. Don't forget that. Yeah, that's true. That that's was cool. a tearjerker of a movie, though, that yeah. Transformers. Yeah, Opt- yeah, Optimus Prime died in the first five minutes. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. We can only hope he dies in number four. Yeah, he, he, he dies in, like, every one, and then he comes back. Well... One of the th- one of the talking points that I wanted to bring up, and I guess we'll start with that one, is kind of the gore in this. So I do remember seeing this. Uh, I didn't see it in the theaters, but I saw it on video, and I remember this film being heavily criticized for the gore in it. And what was your guys's impression? I guess we could start with Randy. What was your impression of it as far as the gore? <laughs> Pedestrian. I mean, it wasn't it, by today's standards. No, it wasn't very gory. I mean, the melting of the hand with the the uh, enzymes, the digestive enzymes, that's about the worst, isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, I, guess, it, I, I guess blowing his head off at the end was kind of <laughs> bad, but he was he was a monster by then. So I mean, puking is always more graphic than uh, just blowing somebody's head off. Yeah, yeah you know, the, the thing the thing about this, the, the the special effects were done by a guy named Chris Wallace and Chris Wallace is responsible for creating the gremlins. And he did like Dragon Slayer and um, House and all that. But he also did, um, if you look at kind of Brundle Fly and the characters, the aliens from Enemy Mine, um, they're almost the same character. I mean, he uses that kind of bubbling on the face and stuff like that. And also uh, some of the like the pustules and things popping. He was also involved in Raiders of the Lost Ark doing some of the makeup. So if you look at when the guy's hand gets melted. And the face, the Nazi guy getting melted when he sees the Ark of the Covenant, they're they're very reminiscent. They're that kind of liquidy and then bone showing through. So, I mean, it was this movie was extremely gory, I think, for the time. But but there's kind of this trend of all the stuff this guy does. The the thing that threw me off on this was uh, I've seen the Toxic Toxic Avenger a bunch of times, and I thought. Uh, Brundlefly looked a lot of uh, during his transformation a lot of the time a lot like Melvin the the Toxic Avenger <laughs> and uh, I had trouble uh, separating that image from this movie. Well, I, I saw it in the 1980s. I know Sancho saw it. Chris, you did you see it in the 1980s? No, no. Actually, for this review, it was the first time I saw this movie. Are you serious? Yes. Oh my god! So we got and I know Randy had mentioned before we started recording that this was the first time he had seen it as well. So, it was too gory uh, for me as a as a good religious kid. <laughs> I, I, I saw it in the 80s, and, and again, my background was I was a little desensitized to it. So uh, I, I thought it was, like, okay. Uh, I thought it was kind of comical. Uh, and, and it was kind of like, um, you know, like uh, you're kind of like laughing, like getting creeped out by the hand melting and stuff like that. So it wasn't, like, terrifying. It was kind of a novelty type of deal. Well, but then I watched it uh, just yesterday. 
And, um, yeah, I, I thought the story was pretty good. I mean, I didn't totally dismiss it. I, I didn't think it was, you know, Oscar worthy or anything like that, but I thought it was pretty good aside from a couple of really unbelievable things. I mean, beginning with the premise that you can teleport and, uh, you know, turn yourself into a fly. I mean, the characters didn't really seem all that believable. And Gina Davis, like, she's not a real good – she's not real good at picking relationships. <laughs> Both can on you imagine film? how much money this, this research would have cost? I mean, to make these pods – and he's doing it like in his like uh, studio apartment. <laughs> yeah, like he's working on Harley Davidsons or something. Yeah, I mean this is like big time revolutionary science, that, and and the machinery he's using would cost millions of dollars in grant money, and it's it's done in his apartment, and you know I mean, that was a uh, in his apartment in not so nice part of town. It looks like <laughs> yeah, some shitty part of town, and this guy's got millions of dollars of of research equipment in, in his apartment. Well, he had to forego location, location, location for uh, a baboon fund because he was clearly popping those out everywhere. Did they ever hint what his source of, uh, of research funding was? There was there was a much more prolific underground scene in the 80s for baboons and, and other primates. You could get those. I, I mean, I, I knew I could score. I could score a chimp easy. Did it ever occur to him? To use like a gerbil, they're a lot cheaper. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, that, he's wasting a baboon. Uh, that that was a huge problem for me. Uh, if, if if they would go with lab rats or mice or something like that, and it just it made no sense. He's got two two baboons, and like I know he's trying to uh, get to the point where he can transport a human first, but uh, come on, you got to take baby steps first. Well, and and, 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 he, and then, then the state comes later. Yeah, it's like well, the stake should come prior to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially. Yeah, especially where he's living, there's got to be rats everywhere. He's just got to catch one and throw it in the fucking thing, and it's gonna. <laughs> and the and the other thing was too, she was eating that dirty ass monkey steak that he was serving her. Come on, that was totally unbelievable. Like she's gonna take a bite of that after that thing got blown up in there. Well, go back to the gore, Chris and Randy. Since you both saw it for the first time, did you feel it took you out of the film by the gore, or were you, as Randy kind of said, it's it's pretty much par for course for today's films. Well, for me, uh, with the part with him as the Brundle fly, it did. But the the scene where uh, where the first baboon gets transported, and there's just like a big uh, hand that's bloody hand that's smeared on the glass. That was a very effective scene. When he opened it, and you actually saw the monkey. That that took me out. But the the suspenseful part of what is it going to look like and blood on the the glass. That was that, I thought that was done extremely well. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was kind of weak that they used like a little writhing puppet. That thing would have been just paste. It wouldn't have been no moving. <laughs> yeah, the, the the inside out baboon puppet was pretty cheesy. And they kind um, of they, they, and I think what uh, Chris is saying is that it would have been really suspenseful, and if they just left it at that, like to leave it to the viewer's imagination. Yeah, yeah, it would have been much more effective. No, I agree with you. That bloody paw hitting the the glass right after he's transported. I thought was very dramatic, and then when you open it up to see what's actually there, unless that yeah. thing was going to jump out at you, I don't see why they had to do that. I thought it would have been more suspenseful. You got the idea. It's dead. It ain't going to live. Right. Right. <laughs> but then, you know, speaking of special effects, the one, uh, yeah, that was a little over the top, but the thing that did, I think, hit its mark is the um, the vomit slash semen pudding on the hand that he that he regurgitated i thought that was pretty sweet although i did see a disconnect with the first one took a little time to melt you know he's like ah looking at his hand the second the ankle he made quick time of that one that was like acid shooting right through that 
Well, it's interesting you bring that up because that's the one effect that I distinctly remember and being kind of grossed out at when I saw this as a teenager was that kind of that vomiting effect that, oh, I have to digest my food, I have to vomit on it to dissolve it and then suck it back up. And just not even the what they show, but just the thought of that I thought was pretty disgusting. It was like that was yeah. probably the most repulsive thing of the whole film to me. Actually, as a kid, I, I, I really remember, uh, I, like, you know, I couldn't watch this movie because it was rated R and that was against family rules. But at school, everyone talked about the vomiting on your food. I mean, that's how everyone learned about flies regurgitating <laughs> onto their food <laughs> before they eat is because it's a stupid movie. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was I mean, that was a, a landmark moment in Hollywood, in my opinion. Yeah. The fly, an educational film as well as entertaining. So. <laughs> uh, the other not special effects, but I think probably uh, wardrobe or costume. Did you notice that Jeff Goldblum and uh, what's her name? Who's the actress? Gina Davis. Gina Davis. Gina Davis. Did you notice they both had the same hair? They do. If you look at yeah, it's like they both have the exact same hairdo. And they were so they use the same. They use the same stud double for both. <laughs> they must have, it was it her climbing around on the wall, or was it Jeff Goldblum? I think it could have been the same. Person. Was that was that Peter Vidmar showing his uh, <laughs> his fly gymnastics? I mean, what was that about? Yeah, that was that was kind of a, an odd sequence there. To get Mitch Gaylord in there to do uh, some gymnastics or something. <laughs> what I like is he was about five foot six on that bar when he was spinning around, but when Jeff Goldblum stood up, he was like six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, yeah, it was like uh, we slipped into Flashdance, or, or no, what was the one uh, that you guys reviewed, Kevin Bacon movie? Oh, the Footloose, yeah. <laughs> it was like Footloose. I just happened to have this gymnastics vault here. This parallel bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one thing they did lack in this was kind of a, a soundtrack, you know, kind of a hit soundtrack to it. It was all classic orchestration, so they missed an opportunity there. Maybe they could have gotten Bonnie Tyler to come out and sing some sort of a fly song or totally clips of the fly <laughs> it was uh I, I was okay i was like a c probably watching this one and and thinking that it was going to be as kind of uh good as it was before but the, it was pretty good science fiction i thought overall well chris brought up something before we started um recording about what he something he wanted to talk about and something i never thought of chris you want to talk about that yeah, this could be another one of these me reading way too much into a movie, which I do quite often. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's back in the 80s, uh, AIDS was a huge thing. And uh, it seems I just picked up some AIDS related um, themes in here. Like I noticed that, uh, what was her name? Veronica, she was having crazy unprotected sex with, with um, Brendel, who was a relative unknown to her at the time. When she was talking with her ex-boyfriend, he wanted to know if they could have some uh, just friends with benefit sex. And although she called him a pig, she never said no. So you've got this theme that was big of unprotected sex. And then somebody getting this horrible disease that uh, pretty much ostracizes him from all of society, which is basically what this Jeff Goldblum character uh, was a slow deterioration on the inside and then it after a certain point it's all on the outside for example um the first thing that you notice something's not right are those hairs on his back which is still a fairly internal thing that a society wouldn't see but the the second thing was his face began to become splotchy and if you know anything about aids uh victims one of the first things that the public will notice about them is they start to get uh, splotchy spots on their face uh, in the form of like cancer on their nose and such so I noticed some you know parallels like his deterioration 
uh, seem to parallel a- uh, AIDS victims' deterioration. So you're talking about Kaposi's sarcoma? Sure. <laughs> well, what, okay, what, what, about, what does it have to say about deaf people? Because his ear did fall off, too. <laughs> uh, it's just kind of like they are a leper of the world. That, that's how AIDS was looked at. Fair enough. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd heard some about that before. I think that's a good. Uh, I think that's a good uh, analogy. And some people had said. I mean, at the time, it was very timely. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, <laughs> this was before Philadelphia, as I mentioned in uh, my synopsis. In Philadelphia, was kind of the big one that kind of brought AIDS stories to the forefront. You know, everybody was shocked a couple of years prior to this movie coming out with Rock Hudson saying he was gay and he had AIDS. So you know, it wasn't really talked about. So you kind of had. You couldn't really just come out and say it you had to use metaphors and hide behind stories you know i don't know if that was his intention but i just saw a lot of parallels with what uh aids victims of the time were going through so what do you think was the the thrust of the message then if if you think aids was the driving force in the in the story Mm -hmm. what do you think was the overall message of the movie I think that uh, shoot them in the head. Shoot them in the head. <laughs> You're gonna have maggot babies. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, and actually, that's that's another one. Uh, she, Gina <clears throat> Davis, has had uh, sex with somebody who is uh, who's got this horrible disease, and she doesn't know if she's gonna get it. She doesn't know if her baby's gonna get it. Her ex boyfriend's like, stay away. You could get this. Uh, so that's. Hot. Cautionary tale is that? Is that the it's a cautionary tale, and I think what they were trying to show, if you're going with that analogy, is that he, up until the end he tried to keep his humanity, but and he was still human, but in the end it just got the better of him. So, well, you know, I don't know how much thought was put into it or how much I'm reading into it, but that's my take. Well, and it's an interesting point that this is 1986. This is at 1993 or 94 when Philadelphia came around. Someone with AIDS was probably more ostracized in 1986 and shunned in that way. The, the general thought was you don't know who you can get it from. You can catch this disease. And there was a lot of disinformation out there of how you could catch it or how it was how it was spreading. And that's an interesting, you know, I hadn't thought of it from that point of view, but I can see where someone could take that, you know, see that there's a, the metaphor is there um, that, you know, especially considering the time frame that it, this film was released. Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Well, going from a metaphor for AIDS uh, (laughs) into kind of our next topic of conversation, uh, something that is equally shocking and surprising. This film was produced by Mel Brooks, uh, which uh, Sancho had brought up prior to this recording. This is not what you expect from a Mel Brooks film. There was very little racism in this (laughs) or Jews. There were very few Jews as far as I know, maybe Goldblum, but Goldblum. Yeah, definitely Jewish. So the, so the deal is, I guess he had worked before on uh, the Elephant Man, and the same producer that he that had worked on Elephant Man had worked. Uh, Mel Brooks was involved in that as well, and so um, yeah, so that's it. <laughs> is this what he had to make to get Spaceballs made? This is it probably the, a favor. I don't know if this was the same year as Spaceballs or the year before. Yeah, I want to say Spaceballs was like '88. Was it that long? I don't and think I can so. hear Sancho typing, so he must be looking yeah. at. 87. 87. So a year before Spaceballs. Well, I had read where he'd 
actually he'd put the he was behind part of the producing of this, <laughs> but he also was afraid to put his name on it because he thought people would look to it as a certain kind of film and yeah. wouldn't go see it more that thinking that because his involvement it would have to be some sort of comedy and he didn't want to put his attach his name to it at a certain at one point i definitely right. would have thought of it as a different movie if he was attached to it yeah but he was not directing it he's not in it you know it's different if he would have been the gynecologist that gina davis that goes to go see <laughs> that would have been a pretty interesting scene though <laughs> am i the only one that had the thought though like does this penis have those barbed hairs on it too? That's that's gotta hurt. Yeah, that, that, that barfly gal that he picked up—no pun intended—she uh, <laughs> didn't seem to mind. She was kind of into that, and you know that was a really weird scene too because she didn't seem that drunk. Uh, but he just takes her home, and then he takes her around to another couple places, and he kind of roughs her up in the stairwell. It's more seemed, promiscuous sex. Yeah, kind of more like unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I forgot about the gore of that scene where he breaks the guy's arm in arm wrestling. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. Wasn't that classic, though? The guy walks into a... I've walked into lots of bars, and I'm not ever immediately, like, uh, you know, challenged to fight. And it's yeah. such a cliche in the 80s. Like, Superman, it happens in Superman. It happens in lots of movies in the 80s. You walk into a redneck bar, and the first thing that happens is a redneck challenges you to a fight, you city slicker. <laughs> Well, with that hair, anybody would challenge him to a fight. <laughs> Are you Gina Davis? <laughs> well, that, that's another interesting point that Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum were dating at this time. In fact, they had been dating since they'd done a prior movie together, Transylvania 65000, and went on to do a yet another movie <laughs> together, uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. And I... First of all, I never saw the connection. I don't see the connection anybody with Jeff Goldblum. I don't see why Jeff Goldblum would be attracted to Gina Davis. Is Gina Davis 80s hot? I do not think so. I don't think so either. Sancho? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't. I, well, I don't know. Uh, no. If you had a fly penis, would you put it in her? <laughs> Certainly. She, uh, I don't know if she was 80s hot. She was just kind of quirky, I think. I think she hit a niche, and I think people like thought she was hot for a while. But she's got a. She's like seven feet tall, isn't she? Yeah, she's she's really tall. I mean, that's one thing she does have in common with Jeff Goldblum, which goes to say that they're probably the same person. But yeah, they a, seem like they'd be a great fit for each other. Both a little weird, a little quirky. She was good in Avatar. She was good in Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a Family Guy's episode, and they make fun of actresses that were only hot enough to be hot in the '80s. And uh, one of them was uh, Kelly McGillis. I think the other one might have been Gina Davis, but I can't remember. Kelly, we talked about that in Top Gun. <laughs> Kelly McGillis wasn't even hot in the 80s. <laughs> Gina Davis is six feet tall, whoever's ticky typing. I already found it. Yeah. Gina, you know, Gina Davis is, was, I don't. I never thought she was that hot. I never understood why she kind of got this kind of acceptance as a female lead role. Uh, and this is kind of one of her, the one of the first films that she, she is the lead. She wins a supporting actress Oscar, I think, the next year for next year or two years from now for, for *Accidental Tourist*. But this is one of the first films that she's a lead. Their uh, sex scene was very weird. The one where she was cowgirl, that was um, seemed like very robotic, in my opinion. Not well, that I'm an expert, but it just seemed. <laughs> like... Well, I just always imagine that's the way that Jeff Goldblum is. Is kind of ah, yes, right. Oh, yes. Ah, yeah. oh, yes, yes. You got to hurry up with that. Oh, he's got a lot of weird hand gestures. He's got to go through. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very Brendel fly. So, 
yeah, I, I kind of imagine him in the combination of this and Independence Day and Jurassic Park, where you know, oh, if you uh, if I come this way, we'll go to the left. But if I did it again, then ah, oh, chaos theory. Ah, yeah. <laughs> flux capacitor, <laughs> flux capacitor. <laughs> well, the other thing is is like you know, having had a few regretful evenings uh, drinking too much, this is why you don't keep this shit in your apartment, man. Because <laughs> you get drunk and you start doing crazy shit. <laughs> this whole movie doesn't happen. If he, if he doesn't get drunk, it had the shit in his apartment. If he hadn't got drunk, he wouldn't have got AIDS. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good point. Or use the teleporter. Yeah. And by the way, when he used the teleporter... He was naked and unprotected. How do you get AIDS? Naked and unprotected. There's more me reading into it. Okay, Chris. Well, you, you've convinced us, I'm sure, at this point in time. It's a metaphor for AIDS. There. So Jeff Goldblum had AIDS? No. He had flies. He had flies. <laughs> he, had the, he had the metaphor for AIDS. <laughs> Which in this film was flies. Just as deadly, too. Yeah. I think we've beat this fly. Yeah, I think we have. Let's wrap this Did- up. Well, I was going to say, ask one thing before we wrap. Oh, okay. Up. Did anybody think that uh, the Stathis Borans guy was more likable than the uh, Gina Davis and and Brendel characters? There was times when I thought he was the best character in this movie. Well, it was interesting that you know he comes, he starts the film as this major asshole. You know that you know I want friends with benefits. I just break into your apartment and start taking a shower. You know, fuck that you're not doing the story. Now you are doing the story. But at the end of the film, he's almost the hero for all intents and purposes. He saves mm-hmm. Gina Davis. Um, he's helping her out. It, it, it's a very, I mean, it's a complete character change from the way they started with him. It was interesting. I mean, they have no character development to, for him at all. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of interesting that he is a completely different character at the end. Literally kind of half the man he used to be because of all the vomiting on his arms and stuff. But... Um, it, no, I thought it was a kind of a strange transition. And, right. he, and he asked for nothing in return at the end. You know, he did this for her, whereas the the beginning part, he was kind of doing it for himself. All right, let's wrap yes. this. Let's wrap this bitch up and go home for the night. Randy, uh, what are your thoughts? Final thoughts on this film? It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it was up for, or even you said it was considered for an Academy Award. No. Oh, they, they felt just snubbed. Did. Yeah, they, they, act, they may have they took, So they took themselves seriously enough about this movie that they thought this should have been considered. Well, actually, wow. Sis, Siskel and Ebert supposedly a quote that I had seen that they had mentioned something about it, but evidently, film must have really bit it in '86. Yeah. No, I just think it was uh, it was probably groundbreaking on the gore, and um, I don't know, it wasn't that interesting. I thought the characters were two dimensional, and. Um, I was not that impressed, and this was the first time I'd seen it. Go Sancho. All right. I thought it was, uh, as a kid, I thought it was like probably like a B-. minus. And looking at it again, I think the special effects were pretty cool. It had some fun parts to it. Uh, vomiting on the hands was good. Uh, I'd say it downgrades to probably a C-, minus, just strictly because uh, what Randy said, weak character development. Just overall, the storyline's kind of unbelievable. Obviously, it's sci- even as sci-fi, kind of a stinker. And uh, character's unbelievable and shallow. Chris, this was your pick, so what do you got to say? Uh, it's fairly in line with what they said. It, it's just an average movie. Um, it didn't stand out to me. Um, I don't think I'll watch it again. But I am a huge Jeff Goldblum fan, so uh, 
I did like it for that, but this was not the greatest of films. I'm sure that they'll try and remake this one. It's primed for a, a sequel or a reboot or whatever they want to do. But, uh, yeah, just average film. Well, I did see it in the 1980s. I actually really liked this film at one point in time because I remember actually owning a VH co- VHS copy of it. Um, I've never upgraded that to DVD and haven't seen it since probably the early 90s. I romanticize this a lot more in my head. This is kind of frightening, very intense thriller. Uh, it does not stand the test of time. I, I agree with pretty much what everyone says. There is no character development whatsoever. It's kind of a C movie. Um, the best parts of it are some of the gore, um, that the frightening gore. And I still think that the whole vomiting sequence is still kind of disgusting in a frightening way. But no, I wouldn't. I don't think it stands the test of time. I think even the gore has kind of been possibly even surpassed by a lot of films today. But no, I, I wouldn't rewatch this again. I was surprised at how short it was. I remember this is a much more, much longer, more epic film, but it's only 95 minutes long. It is, it's a breeze to get through, even it, just to watch it once, but I wouldn't go back and purchase it again. All right, well, that's The Fly. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter under Lunchtime Movie. And on each of those, you can keep updated on our new podcasts as well as video extras and news about upcoming films. Finally, if you are a fan of the show, help us keep it going by visiting either Amazon.com or Audible.com through our website. Anytime you click on one of their links and make a purchase, a portion of your purchase goes to support the upkeep of the podcast. Uh, thank you guys for all being here tonight. Uh, hopefully I did a good job filling in for Matt for this one week. Hey, uh, just uh, to add to that, I hope Matt gets well soon. I know those opera injuries can uh, be a tough one to overcome, but yeah. I'm sure he'll be back and strong as ever soon. Yeah, his, his voice is a little shy. So. <laughs> we got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. Noted.